Morning Christ Community Church. My name is Matt Holdsworth, and I have the privilege of reading God's word for us this morning from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, which you'd like to follow along with us, you can use one of the blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and that'll be on page 973. Again, that's Galatians 2, verses 1 through 20, or sorry, verses 11 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please take a second. You can be seated, and please take a second to reflect on God's word. Hello. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll pray. Gracious Father, every single word that you have caused to be written down and preserved for us in Scripture is trustworthy and true. And those are the words that we need. Lord, would you open our ears to hear your word? Would you open our hearts to receive your word? And would you unclench our hands and uh, enable us Uh, to really live differently as a result of what we hear in your word. Help me to proclaim it faithfully and clearly. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. My name is uh, Sam Kennedy. I had the pleasure of serving on staff here for several years and was a member of Christ Community back in the day, back in the, the, the gym days at the Temple Baptist Activity Center. And I, I just love this place, and there's so many uh, faces out here that if I look too long at, I will start weeping because I miss seeing you, so, um, but it is really good to be here with you all. Uh, right now, I'm serving as the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is the campus ministry of the, the Presbyterian Church in America denomination. And so I serve as a campus minister at UNCW, pastoring students, trying to gather a group of students um, to, we like to say, um, 
to learn to love Jesus, learn to love the campus, and learn how to love their neighbors. That's our goal for students while they're there, is that they would be a community of learners who are learning those three things. And uh, this semester, I've had the pleasure of, in our Tuesday night large group meetings, that meets in uh, Cameron Hall, room 105, most weeks on campus, uh, going through the book of Galatians. And so this passage is a passage that uh, I keep coming back to with students, even after teaching it uh, a couple months ago. Uh, And there's so much here. But there's some background in this passage that's going to be important to to fill in for us in order to get what Paul's saying here. I wonder for you if you've ever said something like this to yourself or to a friend. You know, I just find it so hard to, to obey God all the time. I find it so hard to know what God wants me to do in, in these situations. And, and it's... It, it, even if I know it, it feels like it's hard for me to apply it consistently in my life, to apply God's commands. And, and when you do fail, as we often do, I wonder if you ever say something like this to yourself. You know, those disciples, they had it so easy. You know, they got to see all these incredible miracles. I mean, they got to be in the presence of Jesus I mean, if I had an experience like that, if I really witnessed some kind of miracle or had some kind of vision or something like that, then I wouldn't struggle anymore. Then I wouldn't find it hard to believe. You know, thankfully, friends, when we tell ourselves things like that, the Bible uh, has an answer for that, which is even the best Christians screw up. Even the most privileged people in redemptive history Even apostles can sometimes be hypocrites, can sometimes fail to live up to the truth which they have accepted and know and has grabbed a hold of them, that the gospel for all of us, even the best of us, uh, the gospel takes a while to sink in. Case in point, the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, who Paul calls Cephas in this passage. Cephas, the one Paul refers to, is St. Peter, you know, Jesus' disciple and companion, Peter. Think of what, what Peter witnessed. He witnessed pretty much all of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He was there at the very beginning, saw Jesus walk on water, uh, saw Jesus uh, perform all kinds of miracles. He was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus was taught by Jesus post-resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven, gave Peter and Jesus' other disciples the Great Commission, which says, go and be my witnesses. Go teach everyone everything that I have commanded you and go into all nations, right? So there's this great commission to go to all kinds of different people with the message of the gospel. Peter, after seeing Pentecost and experiencing uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, has another supernatural experience. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. At this point in Acts chapter 10, the gospel had pretty much been confined to Jewish people. To, to people of Jewish heritage or, or Gentiles that had converted 
uh, to Judaism. But the gospel is about to make this move in Acts chapter 10 out to all nations. And the way it begins is Peter has a dream. Peter has a dream, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 10. You don't have to turn to it, but you can you look at it later. He sees a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet are all kinds of different animals, unclean animals, animals that it's not a kosher for a Jewish man to eat. And he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter says, by no means, Lord. He knows it's God's voice. By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. Remember that. What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter sees that vision three more times, or three times total, wakes up, and immediately gets an invitation to have a meal with a Gentile man, a non-Jewish man. Peter goes to the house of the Gentile non-Jewish man, sits with them, explains the gospel to them. And he says this, you yourselves, people, know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Isn't that strange? Peter gets a vision about food but then he makes an application and he says, God has shown me not that I, should, uh, that I should call food unclean or common. But he says, now God has showed me that I should not call any person common or unclean that God has made clean. Why is that? Well, Peter knows, and as Jesus taught, that all these, the, the Jewish ritual food laws were, were really designed not to protect God's people from... Um, you know, food poisoning, but actually to keep them from associating socially with people who are worshiping pagan gods, from having table fellowship and intimate association and intermarriage with people who are worshiping false gods. And so, but Peter realizes now that Jesus has come, that these old walls of separation, these old social regulations that kept Jews and non-Jews apart have been completely obliterated. And now Peter has no right to, to keep himself apart from anyone on the basis of you know, purity. Having seen all of that then, when Peter comes to visit Paul and some of the, the, the Christians at the church in Antioch, which is a melting pot, you know, there's, there's Jewish people, non-Jewish people. It is really a multicultural church, this early church in Antioch. Peter goes, initially he's having table fellowship with all the non-Jewish people, treating them just like anyone else. And then a group of people come from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, come and Peter starts playing favorites. He starts sitting with the people that look like him, that grew up like him, that talk like him, that dress like him and shunning these other people. And Paul calls him out on it. And Paul tells the story of him calling Peter out on his hypocrisy as a way of illustrating and applying the truth of the gospel. This specific truth that I think we need to hear this morning, which is that because we as Christians, now I don't assume that everyone here is a Christian this morning, but let's just say 
if you are a Christian this morning, friends, I've got news for you. You will continue to sin. <laughs> and because Christians continue to sin, we continually need to be reminded of the free grace of God and the righteousness that is offered to us in the gospel. So really two points for us this morning. One, Christians fail. Two, Christians are not merely failures. So first, Christians fail. What was Peter's failure as Paul uh, recounts this story? What, what What was Peter's sin? Well, he pulled away. He, he played favorites. Uh, he added these holiness rules that, that, did, that no longer applied uh, to himself. And he essentially um, you know, created in this church setting a, a group of JV and varsity Christians. And so Peter, by playing favorites, uh, he pulled away, misrepresented the gospel, but also because of his leadership role, uh, he led others away too. Now, in verse 11, the result of this failure, Paul says that Peter stood condemned. In the NIV, it says that Peter was in the wrong. This just means that Peter was not living in line with his beliefs. He knew what he was doing was not right. Does this sound familiar? He, he knew he wasn't supposed to do this. But because of social pressure, because of other pressure that he felt, he did it anyway. I just wonder if, if you ever find yourself in that position. Where you know that there's, there's, you know you're not supposed to raise your voice with your child in that way. You know that, uh, you know, Shaming them doesn't actually motivate them to, to do better. Or you, you know um, that you're not supposed to get angry with that coworker. You know that really there's that, that needy person down the street, uh, that difficult to talk to person, perhaps, and you, you think, I, I really ought to, to go call on them. I really ought to go uh, invite them over for dinner. And you just continuously put it at the bottom of your to-do list. Peter struggled with that too. Why, why does this happen, friends? I mean, wh- why do people, even the best of us, Peters, who have witnessed uh, incredible things, uh, who have had true faith in Jesus, who, who truly are uh, saved, spirit-indwelt people, who are loved by God and know it, why, why are we so forgetful? Why do we struggle? The reality is, is that the truth takes time to sink in. Our transformation, or as um, theologians call it, our sanctification, we always have to remember, is incomplete in this life. That Jesus' death on the cross, when you place your faith in Jesus' death on the cross, in his, his perfect life given as a sacrifice for your sin, the penalty of sin is taken away. The power of sin over your life is removed. You're no longer a slave to sin, but the presence of sin in your life still remains. And so Christians, 
we, we have to struggle. And even for Peter, the presence of sin, the presence of selfishness, the presence of a desire for comfort, to, to be liked, to be approved of, to be accepted, it still resided within his heart and he still had to struggle uh, against it. Um, sometimes you can know things in your head and it takes a while for them to get into your heart, to kind of get in your bones. Right after I, I came back from college, I uh, was living with Paul and Nancy Phillips for a while. And that was a really fun time. And uh, Nancy got to see how messy my bedroom can be and still is. <laughs> and uh, so I was living there, you know, kind of in the Monkey Junction area. And I had grown up in that area. And one time I was driving to work in the morning. I was working at the Young Life office that was down, uh, like down College Road near um, Market Street. And I was driving to work one morning and I looked up and I found myself in the driveway of one of my best friends from high school's house, which was really strange because uh, he did not live there anymore, nor did his parents. But what had happened is for several years in high school, I always drove to pick up my friend Joe from school. And I would just, you know, drive down College Road, take a ride on Greenhow, and then I'd come in and I'd stop at his house and pick him up and wait for him to, to come out. And I had gotten so used to driving down that stretch of road, making those turns, that it was in my bones. So without even thinking about it, I reverted back to this old way of operating. And I found myself with my car idling in front of my friend Joe's house who no longer lived there. Now, in the same way, you could be a Christian for many, many years. And the old patterns of seeking approval, of seeking righteousness, of seeking relief, of seeking control that come so naturally to you can be deeply ingrained in, in your body <laughs> to the degree that it it is difficult to break free and you get carried away and you look up and you go, how did I find myself here? The old habits take a, a long time to break. As uh, this preacher uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, that it is very possible and, and normal sometimes for Christians to have a gospel head and a legal heart. Meaning that you can, with your mind, believe what we sang. That because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Oh, I'm free. My debt is paid. But then still in your heart, think, ah, oh, there's something else I have to do to really distinguish myself before God and before other people. There's something extra that I need to achieve. So what does Paul do when Peter really fails? He pastors him, which I think is so great. Sometimes we can read this and just think, well, Paul just laid him out and rebuked him in front of all these people. I don't actually think that's what Paul did. Because Paul doesn't just say, you're in the wrong. He reasons with him. And he reminds him of the truth. Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, when you're afraid, you need to be loved and strengthened to have the courage to do what's right despite your fear. 
you know, Peter was afraid. He was afraid of being judged by these uh, Jerusalem Christians. And so Paul's response is not, Peter, you're breaking the rules, but Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. (laughs) He drives him back to the truth of the gospel to strengthen him. He says, Peter, you don't need approval from these people. You've already got the approval of the only one who matters. And this approval, this new sense of identity that is so durable that even our screw-ups, even humongous bloomers like what Peter did, even those screw-ups and hypocrisy cannot undo it. Paul goes on to remind Peter what that identity is, that durable identity and how we get it. That durable identity, Paul calls justification by faith in verse 16, and that's the basis for our second point. So Christians who fail are not merely failures. Why do I say merely failures? Because at this point, let's all be honest, Peter was a failure. I mean, he had failed to really embody and live out and be obedient to the Great Commission. Uh, He had failed to embody and live out the, the, the vision that he received in Acts chapter, chapter 10. He was really calling these people un, uh, common and unclean by not eating with them. So Peter, Peter had failed. But Paul reminded him that there are other facts involved, namely that Peter was a loved failure. He was an approved failure, an accepted failure. Acceptance by God is the basic meaning of that word justification. Justification is a legal term. And it's it's hard to see, but in Greek, the word justify, when when Paul says, we who seek to be justified in Christ, is the same root word as the word righteous that we have at the end of the passage. So Paul is essentially saying that, that for him, justification is this idea of righteousification, of being declared righteous, declared acceptable, declared worthy by the only voice that matters, by the only judge that matters. Justification is a, is a legal term. So in the Old Testament, it's connected with a courtroom, someone being vindicated and the charges being dropped or declared not guilty. In Deuteronomy 25, it says, if there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. That word acquitting is the same word that gets translated uh, justify. So the opposite of justification, note this, is not immorality, badness, sinfulness, crookedness, The opposite of justification is condemnation. So here's the thing. If you're justified, like Peter, through the free grace of God, you are not condemned. All those who are united to Jesus are changed progressively. And that change is is like what a doctor does when he heals us from a disease. That's called sanctification. But justification is not like what a doctor does. It's like what a judge does. It's about God's view of us. It's about his declaration of you, his verdict of not guilty or not condemned that hangs over your life. Why is that important to remember? 
Because this is a courtroom word, it means that we can rest. Because even while we're in the process of changing, God's judgment of us is based upon something that has already been done. The verdict has already been rendered. If being acceptable to God was based on um, the degree to which we change, then friends, every single time that you fail, every single time you struggle, every single time that you realize that you weren't as righteous or as holy as you thought you were, then you're standing before God as in jeopardy. Then your identity's at stake. But if justification is a once and for all declaration on behalf of God, the ruler of the universe, the highest courtroom in the land, or any land, saying over you, not guilty, man, that is really good news. And this means anyone who has put simple faith in Jesus Christ and come to him for forgiveness of sins never needs to fear being condemned by God. That's Paul's basic point in Romans chapter 8. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who could condemn? So that's what justification is. That's what Paul reminds Peter of. But the basis of justification we see in verse 20. The basis of that declaration on God's part of not guilty over the life of all who come to him through Jesus Christ. The basis for that approval is in verse 20. Look at it with me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The basis for God's verdict on your life and on my life and on the lives of all the sorriest sinners who possibly will come to him throughout, until Jesus comes back. The basis for that verdict is Christ's, Christ's perfect life and death. We are declared not guilty only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed or counted to us. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. He says, for our sake, for our needy sinners' sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This idea of being crucified with Christ, of being in Christ, of being found in him. The image that Paul is using is of being clothed in Jesus or, or, or covered in Christ. Um, sometimes uh, my daughter, Hattie, who's eight, and I will play this game where she'll grab a blanket or she'll hide uh, under the covers in her room and I'll come in and I'll say, where's Hattie? Like, what's, what's going on? And uh, sometimes, uh, especially in spooky season, which we're in right now, uh, Halloween, uh, she'll say something like, I'm a ghost, I'm a spooky ghost. And I'll be like, oh no, there's a ghost in our house. And 
It's a silly game. And, but I want you to have that picture in your mind of my daughter completely covered in a blanket so that I can't see her. And I'm relating to her you know, through this blanket. If you have put simple faith in Jesus Christ, you are clothed with Christ. You are covered with Christ. And not with some dusty blanket. You're clothed with perfect righteousness. So that God looks at you and he says, my child, there you are. And he relates to you through the perfect obedience of Jesus. How much fatherly love and acceptance and approval does Jesus deserve? That's what you get. That's what we enjoy. The basis of our justification is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that covers us like a blanket, that clothes us like a robe. Now, how are we justified? Since it's a gift, how do we receive the gift? This is what Paul says in verse 16 here. Yet we know, he's speaking about him and Peter. He's saying, Peter, you know this, we know this. A person is not justified, not, not um, freed from condemnation by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I think Paul just broke a world record for the amount of times you can fit the phrase works of the law in a sentence. You think he's trying to make a point about the works of the law there (laughs) in verse 16? He's saying, hey, here's how you don't do it. Here's how you don't receive the gift. Is by being really good at obedience. Here's how you don't qualify for it. By being super disciplined. By having just the right habits. By never making a misstep. By by really with, with all your passion and intensity and emotion you know, really sticking to it. He's saying, if you're looking at yourself, you're looking in the wrong direction. You receive it by grace through faith. And the image there is not a clenched hand. It's an open hand. Faith is about receiving with open hands what God is freely offering to all who come to him. Sometimes, especially with my students um, who have some intellectual questions about Christianity, they'll sometimes think, you know, I I just can't turn my brain off and have faith. I have too many doubts. And because, you know, in the culture sometimes, faith is um, opposed to um, facts or, or science, you know, like, well, you have facts, I have faith. And so faith is just this turn off your brain kind of blind assent to something. But friends, you have to understand this. A doubting faith can still be a saving faith. An imperfect faith can still be a saving faith because it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. See, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is works, according to Paul. The opposite of faith is is earning. 
And so Paul is saying, Peter, before God, your failures, all your medals, all your trophies for obedience, neither of them are what cause God to accept you. Neither of them are what draws him to you. You are accepted and seen as good apart from your actions, good or bad. For all who have put simple faith in Jesus, believed in him, rested on him alone for salvation, this is the gift that God is offering you. The verdict has come in. God rendered it. No condemnation. Peace with God. Now, this is a truth that takes time to live into. We are forgetful people, are we not? It's so easy to have a gospel head and a legal heart, just like Peter. But one way that I think is, is so helpful is to be reminded that all the righteousness that you need, past, present, and future, has been stored up for you by Jesus And God is holding on to it securely for you so that you cannot screw it up. It's not as though, you know, God poured a bunch of money into your account and you have to be really good at managing it, otherwise it's going to run out. No, he has locked it away for you. Your righteousness is safe with Christ. There's this preacher, uh, John Bunyan, an old Puritan uh, preacher, who struggled with believing the fact that he was accepted by God. You know, struggled when he thought about his imperfection, his failures, his sins, his inability to live up to what he uh, practiced and believed. He was so discouraged, and he says in his biography one day that um, he was sitting in a field, and he says this, one day as I was passing by in the field with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest all was still not right with me and God, wondering Maybe God won't accept me after all. He says, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought as well that I saw with the eyes of my soul, I thought I saw Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And I looked and I said, there, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John Bunyan lacks righteousness, for that righteousness is right before him. He's looking at it. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Here I lived for some time, sweetly at peace with God through Christ. At every point, when you feel a dash on your conscience because you failed, God wants to remind you that your righteousness is in Christ. And being reminded of that will drive you to improve. It will drive you to strive against sin, to put sinful desires to death and and to strive for righteousness. Paul's going to talk about that in Galatians 5 and 6. But at no point is your acceptance before God put in jeopardy, friends, because your righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is in Christ. You can receive that identity and rest on it. We never get through with the gospel. We always need it. Let's pray. Father, would you 
work this truth into our hearts in such a way that we draw from it continuously. Lord, would you teach us to rest in you, to trust in you. And Lord, would you help us, like Paul, to be good pastors to other people, to come alongside them and remind them of what's true. And Lord, from that starting point and that foundation of your gracious acceptance of us, would you teach us to live holy lives, to pray without ceasing, um, to, to do acts of mercy and justice, and to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. We ask that you would do it by your power. In Christ's name, amen.